It's question show time. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are, cross my channel, question pops into your brain, write it down, I'll gather them up, and I'll answer them here. Again, people are like, any video? Yeah, I see all, I see everything. So if you go back to like some earlier videos or if like you're watching one of my older videos and you've got a question, you can just write it there and I see all the new questions. And actually YouTube has improved their technology so that I can actually search for questions a lot easier and see which questions I have answered and which ones I haven't. So this is gonna get even better. So like I said, question, put it down gather them up, I'll answer them here. All right, let's get into it. Tiny Rogers. Hey Fraser, love the content. My question is, with the number of moons discovered in the solar system constantly rising, do you think that we should reconsider the definition of moon and what is and is not considered a moon, much like what happened with the planets resulting in Pluto being reclassified? I mean, I think this came about thanks to the discovery of all of these new moons at Saturn. I think now the total number of moons at Saturn is 82, and that number is obviously going to go up and up and up and up. Same with Jupiter. Um, you know, the small, the moon, the new moons around Saturn are in the five kilometer across range. But when you think about an object in space, when you think about the kinds of asteroids that strike the atmosphere, if a five kilometer asteroid or comet hit the earth, it would cause destruction at a continent wide level. Um, I think what was the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs was like 10 kilometers across. So five kilometers is still pretty big. And, you know, people talk about this idea that maybe there are these there are other moons of Earth, uh, Carina, and there's another one. And they're just in the like hundreds of meters size. So um, and they're not really moons, they're sort of co-orbital, they sort of stick around a bit and then they go away and they come back, so it's not really moons. But So I don't think there's, you really need to have a, a another term than a moon. Like, like, if you find all of these objects and they are orbiting around a planet, the planet is the center of the gravity for them and they are moving around, what else are you going to call them but a moon, right? They're going around a planet, that's a moon. So I can't imagine, I mean, maybe there'll be some cutoff point where it's like a piece of dust or a piece of dirt or a bowl of petunias or something like that. So beyond that, now, will the IAU follow my recommendations? No, I don't think so. Um, but I, I don't think it's, the, it's something that they're really super worried about. I'm, you know, the thing, the event that triggered the demotion of Pluto was the discovery of Eris. Right? They found an object roughly the size of Pluto that was farther out. And so now you've got this other object, and you have to say to yourself, is that a planet too? And then what about Haumea? Uh, what about Makemake? What about right Orcus? Well, there's all these objects. Are they planets too? So you don't get to have nine planets ever again. You might have eight planets, thanks to the demotion of Pluto, or you're going to have 10, 12, 15, or as Alan Stern would be fine with 100 planets. And so that's why that was sort of called to question. Um, I don't think the same thing is going to happen with, with moons. But, you know, who knows? I could be wrong. We'll find out. DRH18. While watching Star Trek 3 the other day, you see the Enterprise enter a space station. It got me thinking about how big it would have to be and if we could build one big enough to impact the Earth. How big would it have to be to have its own microgravity? Would you be able to place a super dense material, say neutronium, if it could be made stable to create artificial gravity without having to spin the station? One of the advantages of a space station is that it's in space, right? It is 
orbiting around the Earth and spaceships can come up to it, they can dock with it, they can resupply and then they can take off again and they don't have to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, land on the planet, refuel, then escape the Earth's gravity well and head back off into space again. But if you had a space station and you could somehow get some amount of neutron star, which you can't, right? But let's say you could, and then you gathered an, an Earth's mass of that, and then you put it in orbit around the Earth. Like you can already see the first problem is that you would now have a, a binary planet with the Earth and this neutron, this tiny little neutron star piece. But then if you tried to make a space station around it, yeah, you could have Earth gravity on it. It would be very weird because you'd be like walking around the space station. But the tidal forces would be tremendous. But then your spaceship, if it tried to leave your space station, would have to escape essentially Earth's gravity well. And so this is why, I mean, obviously the impossibility of being able to put make that actually happen is the main reason why. Um, but, but, you know, this is why you want to have a space station be in a place that is in balanced, has balanced forces on it so that spaceships can come and go. And then you have some part that's rotating that you would then be able to actually uh, provide artificial gravity for human beings so that we can, we don't have to deal with being in microgravity. But it, I mean, if we could harness those kinds of forces to be able to tear apart neutron stars and use them for our own purposes. I, I can't even imagine what we would do with it. So it's fun to think about. San Lin Hadet. Fraser, could you explain why the Big Bang didn't recollapse into a black hole at the singularity? We've done videos about this, and I think I've answered this in a previous question show, but you know, sometimes a question just keeps coming up again and again. So, you know, for, this is for the next generation of Fraser Kane question show watchers, um, which is in order to have a black hole, you need to have a difference in density, an over density in one place and an under density in another place. And in the early universe, the whole universe was roughly the same density. So there was no place that one region could compact down into a black hole and then suck the rest of the universe in. The whole universe was sort of pulling on itself equally as it was expanding away from itself. And so it never got the chance to actually pull into a black hole. The other thing, and this is sort of important to think about as well, is that the universe was not a ball, right? At the very point of the Big Bang, the universe was not this sphere that went kaboom and exploded. And then at any point, it could have like, you know, gotten a certain point and then just imploded on itself again and turned into a black hole, right? The universe could have gone on forever. Even before the Big Bang or right at the Big Bang, the universe still could have been infinite. So, I mean, imagine matter compressed down to the point that atoms lose their atomic bonds and everything is just this soup of quarks, gluon, this plasma everywhere, and yet it could have gone on forever. Infinity in all directions. That's what the universe could have been back in the beginning. And so it's very hard to imagine turning infinity into one black hole, a finite black hole in one place. So you need to have this over density and to be able to have a black hole form. And the universe was just too even for this to happen. Scott Whedon, I have a question for you next show. How can astronomers rule out the mass of the black hole at the center of the galaxies as being the missing matter that keeps all of the stars from flying off, rotating at the speed that they go around? 
One of the great discoveries about 50 years ago was this idea that that galaxies are actually rotating too quickly for them to be able to hold. And in fact, if you spun up a galaxy at the speed that they're rotating with the mass that they have to work with, they should be tearing themselves apart. And so the extra mass that is acting as an anchor to hold the whole galaxy together is this idea of dark matter. And dark matter has since been seen in or, you know, not seen in other places to sort of you know, in terms of the way that it um, causes light to bend in space as it's moving over vast distances and, and other sort of signals seen in the cosmic microwave background radiation. So, so astronomers have known for a long time that there's more to galaxies than, than we can see. And so one possibility is that in fact, maybe it's this supermassive black hole that's at the heart of the galaxy. Well, so one of the weird things about galaxies is that when you look at the stars, like so let's imagine the solar system, right? When you look at the planets, they're going around the sun, the planets that are closest to the sun, right? Mercury go the fastest. And then you've got, you know, Venus goes a little slower and earth goes a little slower. And as you get all the way out to Pluto, it's moving very slow. And it's obviously it goes a very long way around as well. But when you look at a galaxy, the motions of the stars are not the same. All of the stars are moving at the same speed regardless of where they are in the galactic disk. So you've got the stars, say, at the, you know, close to the center of the galaxy moving at, you know, if you just could measure their velocity in kilometers per second. And then as you move out to say wherever the sun is, it's moving at roughly the same speed. And so from this astronomers knew that that what we can see is not what truly is that there must be this big halo of mass. And then in fact, this whole thing is spinning and the stars are moving within it. And the reality is, is that these supermassive black holes, even though they're really massive, they're only 1% of the mass of the galaxy, right? The, the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way is 4.1 million times the mass of the sun, but that's only 1% of the mass of the entire galaxy. So it doesn't act like a like an anchor to the galaxy. And so the point I think that's great, right, is that astronomers thought of that. They thought maybe there's some concentration of mass at the core of the of a galaxy and that acts like the mass of a star to cause all of the stars to orbit around it like planets. And yet the the speed the motions of the stars didn't match up with what they expected to see. And so they had to essentially search for other ideas. Amur al Ismamli. How far and how small can we see in our solar system? Those are really two different questions that you're asking, right? How far away? What's like the farthest object that we can see in the solar system? And right now, the farthest object is called, and you're gonna love this, far, far out. <laughs> and it's a, uh, it's a Kuiper Belt object, and it's about 140 astronomical units. So it's about 140 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So it's really far away, way farther than Pluto. And it, you know, it's called far, far out because the previous record holder was this object called far out. And obviously they'll eventually get a better name. And these are sort of at the very limits of what astronomers can discover with the telescopes that we have at our disposal today. But you can imagine as the next generation of telescopes come around, astronomers will be able to see much farther out. I mean, it'll be far, 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 far. Who knows what the, what the names are going to be. The farthest object that we can think of is a comet that arrived back during the Roman era. 
and it was like one of the brightest objects. It's called Caesar's Comet, and now it is moving way out into the outer solar system, and now it's about 800 astronomical units, but we can't observe it anymore. But it's sort of, we know that it was here, and astronomers have been able to calculate where it should be. So it's sort of like the, the object with the farthest possible orbit. And then when you think about what is the smallest object that people can see, I mean, it all just depends on the distance. So if objects are really close to the Earth, we detect um, space rocks that are just a couple of meters across as they're coming really close to the Earth. The, the moons that were discovered around Saturn, like I said, were in the kind of the five kilometer range. So it's just the farther you look, the, the bigger the smallest object can be. And part of it as well is just that space is so big there are very powerful telescopes that could see smaller objects, but astronomers don't know where to look. You can't just point your telescope in the sky and then find really far things away. You've got to point your telescope at things where you're observing the width of a hair that is 100 kilometers away, and you've got to point exactly in the right spot, and then you can observe the object. So you've got one group of astronomers that are turning up new objects, and then you've got other astronomers that are using more powerful telescopes to point on those objects and, and learn more about them. And so Planet 9 is probably, for example, you know, it's this mysterious object in the outer reaches of the solar system. It's probably visible with the most powerful telescopes on Earth, but the problem is that astronomers don't know where to look to see it. And so it's going to take something else to find it, and then we can learn more about it. Tamid Hussein. Everyone says that black holes evaporate. What are the leftovers of black hole evaporation? This idea of black hole evaporation, right? This is the one of the amazing ideas provided by Professor Stephen Hawking. And that there are these virtual particles and they appear near the event horizon of black holes and they remove its mass. We've done a bunch of episodes about this. But over long periods of time, that's not exactly what it really is. It's really that you've got sort of particles, vibrations, there's more to it. But the gist is, is that black holes can evaporate. And so you get this situation where the black hole over like vast periods of time disappears particle by particle, and its temperature rises. And as its temperature rises, it actually gives off more and more particles. So a black hole can eventually be say, I forget what it is like about the size of the moon and be about room temperature. And then it just gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And so a black hole might have the mass of my house and be as hot as the sun. And eventually, as it gets hotter and hotter, it's giving off photons and the photons are in the form of really high energy, high temperature particles. So you're seeing gamma radiation blast off this small object. And then at the, in the very end, when it's almost out of particles, it just it sort of blasts off all the gamma radiation and then it's gone. So there is nothing left over when a black hole evaporates. Building with Todd. Hey Fraser, is it possible to have a star made of something different than helium and hydrogen? Sure, all stars, except for like the ones that were formed right after the Big Bang, and even them, um, have other elements in them other than helium and hydrogen. But I guess what you're really asking is like, you know, could you have a star that has no helium and hydrogen and then has something else like oxygen? And sure, um, you know, we know that the most massive stars, the ones with several times the mass of the sun, don't stop like like our sun is going to burn or fuse hydrogen in its core into helium and then it's going to fuse helium in its core into oxygen and then it's going to run out of mass to be able to actually fuse oxygen farther up the chain it's going to die you know it's going to do it's going to get to carbon i think and then it's going to stop being able to use fusion in its core and then it's just going to cool down and you end up with this diamond 
right? Um, but if you had a more massive star, one that was several times the mass of the sun, then they keep going. And then, and if they're massive enough, they go all the way up to iron and then they implode and explode as a supernova. So you could have a star that's made of say all oxygen and it's going to have all this pressure and gravity and it's going to be fusing oxygen in its core into carbon um, and it'll just keep going. So the key is if you just have enough of it in one space that it can actually have that fusion process going on. HPA 97. Could a planet potentially orbit two different stars with an orbit looking like an 8 or an O shape? No to 8, yes to O. So, um, so the idea, like, we know that, uh, that there are many stars out there that are in a binary formation, right? You've got two stars that are orbiting around each other, and that's no problem. You can have a multiple star system. You can have three stars, four stars, whatever. And it's also been found that you can have planets going around these stars. But the key is the positions of the stars and the positions of the planets. So if you have two stars orbiting around each other in a binary system, right, they're, they're similar mass and they're just going around each other, then if you go far enough away from those stars, you can start to have planets. And from the planet's perspective, they're just orbiting one center of mass. It's as if there's one star with the mass of two stars at the middle of their of that star system and the planets are all orbiting around them and that can be perfectly stable another possibility is you can have like one really massive star then you've got a planetary system around it and then really far away you've got another star or a less massive star that is orbiting around it kind of like another planet but it's really far and then that other star could have a bunch of planets orbiting around it so as long as the stars are far enough apart the thing that you can't have is the stars pretty close together or reasonably close together and then the planets all mixed up like the planets will just crash into either and just get gobbled up by the stars and so you can't get that that eight that you were hoping for that kind of racetrack orbit it's got to be everything's got to go in in um ellipses it's got to right they've all got to follow an, an orbital path around and so the stars have either got to be close together or really far apart for the system to work. But you can definitely have planets around binary stars and, and in multiple star systems. Mandy, if an alien civilization had the same technology that we do, could they find Planet Nine before us if they use the same technique that we use when looking for planets in other solar systems? As I mentioned in the last episode, um, we still don't know of what all the planets are here in the solar system, even though we are starting to find planets in other star systems um, but the reality is is that if you were in another star system and you were trying to find dim objects like planet nine it would be even harder to find them in the solar system than if we were in the solar system right there's no that we're as close as you can get to planet nine so it's going to be as bright and as close to us as possible if you're in some other star system then it's just going to be super faint and the light of the star is going to be outshining any objects that are going to be around it and it's going to be much more difficult for them to observe so so we're at the best place possible to try and discover planet nine malchevet sorry i cannot imagine that if they are very advanced we are no threat to them probably not even in the future unless they have lost their ability to evolve for some reason and they know that we are going to catch up maybe in that case the discussion, the, the debate about the Fermi Paradox continues. And so in the last episode, I mentioned that you know, there's no economic reason for aliens to want to come to the solar system, but they might come to prevent a future competitor. And you're saying no matter how 
you know, if they're advanced, then we aren't a competitor to them. But remember that we are advancing very quickly. Think about, we've only been flying for 120 years-ish, less, right? We've only had rocketry for 70 years. Um, we've only had some of the more advanced technology that we have for decades. So when you think about how quickly humanity has gone from being a purely agricultural society to flying in space, it's the blink of an eye. And we are not, I hope that we are not at the end of our journey. We are going to continue our technological advancement. We are going to learn to figure out how to master spaceflight. We are going to become a solar system spanning civilization. And it's going to be in, the, in a matter of hundreds of years from now. We will eventually be using all of the resources of the solar system and starting to reach out to other star systems. And if we find out the technological capability of other alien civilizations out there, we're going to try to get ourselves to parity as quickly as humanly possible. And the aliens will expect that, right? They'll be like, that's what we would do. And so it does make sense for them to, to explore the Milky Way, looking for any civilization, who could stand a chance of being a future threat to them. And then what they decide to do with that knowledge kind of depends on whether they're nice or they're mean. Soy night. They say that almost every star is orbited by planet or planets. If you say aliens or alien life in any form doesn't exist, I say you need to go get your head checked with most respect though. Thank you for the respect. Uh, this is the heart of the Fermi paradox. We're like back to the beginning, right? Which is that we now know that there are hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way. It looks like every single one of those stars has planets orbiting around it. The moment life could form here on Earth, it did. And then much later on evolved multicellular organisms. It would seem absolutely baffling that we don't see life everywhere across the universe. And yet we don't. And so why don't we? That's the Fermi paradox. And that's why it's so interesting. And yes, why don't they just stick a frickin' microscope experiment inside the rover and try to see the microbes? They did. Uh, the Mars 2020 rover is going to have a microscope experiment in it. So this idea of searching for life on Mars, it's this step-by-step -step process. When they did the Viking experiment, they thought they found life, but the results were inconclusive. And so NASA knew that if they were going to find life on Mars, they had to be certain about it. And so instead, they went through this process of building up the case for life on Mars. They started by sending Spirit and Opportunity, which looked for evidence that there was ever water on Mars, and they found it. And then they sent Curiosity, which said, was water on the surface of Mars for long periods of time? And Curiosity found that it was. And so the Mars 2020 rover, its job is really, has there ever been life on Mars? Is there life there today? And it's got a whole bunch of experiments to try to figure that out, including a microscope that will look for little fossils in the samples that it picks up. So the Mars 2020 rover should be the next step in this search for life. And it could very well be the one that gives us definitive proof that there was once life on Mars and that there might be life there today. Okay. 
That was it. Those are our questions. Thanks everybody for sending them in. As always, this is super fun. I really enjoy it. Um, so uh, question pops into your brain, write it down. I'll gather them up. I'll answer them here and I'll see you next week.